Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Damascus Road Church. Our current series is Jesus Over All, a look inside the call for the glory of God to be our aim in all of life. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. All right. So we're in our second week of our new series, Jesus Over All, which is our fall series. It's a series on worship and what it is and how we can apply worship to our entire lives. We believe that the Bible says that worship isn't something that just happens in here, whether we do liturgy or not, whether we do singing or not, that this isn't the only place that we do worship, but that as Christians, we should be worshiping God in everything that we do, and that if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you are worshiping something. Today's the second week. Last week, we kind of set this broad panoramic view of what worship is and why God is worthy of it. And this week, we're going to talk about How do we worship? And it's going to really function as the grid for the rest of our series. And so what I want you to do is, if you're prone to take notes or if you're open to it, on the back of your bulletin, there's a space to take some notes. I'm going to ask you to take a couple because this is really the pillars on which the next eight or nine weeks are going to sit. And what I'm hoping to have happen here is, as we get into God's Word and as we think about it, we're going to learn to lead our heart and we're going to learn to guard our heart. The Bible says that out of the heart are the issues of life, that the things that we love and that we value and that we care about that our identity, that that's the way that we interpret life, that's the way that we look at life. And so what I'm hoping to do is to help you have the, the skills that you need to pastor your own heart. What I don't want to do is I don't want to teach you that I'm the answer guy, right? Because I'm not. I have as many questions as you do. I have as many doubts as you do. And I think that good pastoring is the ability to teach somebody to get to Jesus on a regular basis just between them and the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Bible says that you can do that. We believe that God says that he wants a relationship with you, that he empowers it through the Holy Spirit, that he makes it possible through Jesus, that he wants to hear from you. He doesn't want to hear from me for you. And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to evaluate what we care about and what we worship and what we love, and we're going to try to develop a language around that that helps us simply and easily do that. How many guys like stories? I love stories. And I like stories more now that I have kids because every single night they say, Daddy, can you tell us a story? And I'm like, I I don't have any more stories. I'm out, right? So um, my wife has been doing some schooling with my kids and uh, my son is reading a kid's version of the Iliad. How many guys have read the Iliad? Or how many of you, I should say this, were supposed to read it in high school, right? Yeah. Every hand goes up. Yeah. My son's reading the Iliad and he absolutely loves it. And he's telling my wife about, you know, the Trojan horse and and who won and who didn't and why they won and why they didn't. And uh, he's kind of a crazy man like that. But um, the Greeks are some of the best storytellers in the history of of mankind. And they um, they told incredible stories that even if you don't know exactly where they come from, you probably have heard them. And one of the stories that uh, that you maybe have heard of is the story of Prometheus. In fact, the movie Prometheus came out uh, here recently. I haven't watched it, so I don't know if it's about that. But the story of Prometheus is about a titan who got angry at the ultimate god Zeus. He got ticked off at him, and he, he didn't like what he was doing. And so he's angry at Zeus, and he's simultaneously looking down at humanity, and he's concerned for them, and he doesn't feel like their quality of life is all that good. And so out of anger for Zeus and out of care for humankind, he gives humanity three things. The first thing is the thing that he's most well known for, and that's that he gives humanity fire. 
right? At the time, fire being this technology that allowed them to kind of build their civilization and build their civilization exempt of God, exempt of Zeus, so it gives them fire. But the two other things that he gives them that he's a little less well-known for is that he gives them, listen to this, he caused mortals, you and I, to cease foreseeing their doom. In other words, to forget that one day they were going to die. He gave them the ability to live in the present and to not think about the future. To live for today and to live in the belief that I'm going to live forever. So he gives them fire, technology. He gives them the, 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 or he removes the sense of limitation and of mortality. And then he placed in them blind hope. In other words, he gave them blind ambition. The idea that it can always get better and that they can always pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And so here's what he does. He allows humanity to believe that they don't have to put up with things as they are, that they're going to live forever, that they can get better and that they will get better as long as we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make it so. Now, Zeus, when Prometheus does this, is absolutely furious. And what he does is he punishes Prometheus by chaining him to a, a rock out in the middle of nowhere. And he's chained to this rock, and buzzards come every single day and pick and eat his liver. And then at night, his liver regrows, and the next day they do it again. And so <laughs> there's this wonderful, uh, kind judgment that's passed down of him basically being tortured for all of eternity. He also sends to Prometheus' brother a woman by the name of Pandora. Maybe you've heard of her, not the music listening app, okay? Um, and Pandora is given a jar, not a box, and she's told, don't ever look into this jar, because if you do, something very bad is going to happen. What does Pandora do? She opens Pandora's box, and evil comes into the world, and she's actually the first woman in the world, and it's lots of different things going on. So here's the deal. Prometheus teaches humanity that they don't have limitations, that they can do whatever they put their mind to, and he gives them technology. And how does the story end? Badly, right? And it's really, it's really our story, isn't it? Because, especially as Americans, what is the American dream? The American dream is, you can do anything that you put your mind to. And a lot of the political argument that happens is, how much of that is still true, and how much of that is not true any longer, but we are built and conditioned with the idea that we're going to live for a very, very long time, that we can do what needs to be done, and that we have the technology that we need to be able to do it. My wife and I were evaluating our technology in our house the other day, and here's what we found out. We found out that we have purchased, at this point, seven items from a company called Apple. We have three iPads, we have two iPhones, and we have two MacBooks. And let me tell you what that has not accomplished, or what it has accomplished. Nothing. Nothing. We have more technology than we have ever had at any point in our life. We have this American belief that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And I don't know a lot of people who aren't on medication walking around and thinking to themselves, I'm going to die today. In fact, I know a lot of people who live their lives and who do things like they're going to live forever and like there's no consequence to it whatsoever. And so the story of Prometheus is the story of us. And it ends badly. And it ends in bondage. And it ends in suffering. And even though Facebook and Twitter and Apple and Microsoft, the lesser known and less relevant tech company, right? Um, 
have done their best to make our lives better. Has it worked? It hasn't. It really hasn't. People are still miserable. People's marriages are still failing. People still struggle. People still get depressed. And here's the reason. We make the same mistake that Prometheus did. We think that if we change our circumstances, that life will get better. But here's what isn't considered. The human heart. The human heart isn't, con- isn't considered in the equation that Prometheus sets forth or in the equation that we set forth. And here's the reason. Many times we judge, listen, our circumstances and the effort that we put into it, but we fail to consider our values. We fail to consider what we place the highest value on. And here's what happens. We end up failing to realize, and here's what we think, that our circumstances are going to dictate what we care about. Like, these things happen to us. Our life happens to us. Our, our relationships happen to us. And the things that we care about, we care about because of what happened to us. It's actually a philosophic term known as genetic fallacy. That you believe what you believe and love what you love because of how you were raised and what you were exposed to. But here's what the Bible says. Not that your circumstances dictate your values, but listen, that your circumstances expose your values. Your circumstances expose your values. And so whenever I get in an argument with my wife, which happened one time a very, very long time ago, right? (laughs) I can say that the reason that I reacted the way that I reacted is because of what she said. My circumstances dictating my values. But the Bible says that all she did and all that happened was that my circumstances exposed what I valued. And if I think back to that one argument so very long ago, which is just getting cloudy in my head, I can maybe think, I can maybe think that at the time I was trying to watch a game. Or at the time I was busy. Or at the time I didn't feel like arguing. Or at the time I didn't like what she said. And what I end up understanding was that at the time, the thing that I valued more than my wife was at the time the Buckeyes. Or the football game. Or the basketball game. Or the book. Or the whatever. And you can see why I would want it to be that my circumstances dictated my values. Because the idea that I'm such a nasty guy and such a sinful creature that I would treat my wife in such a way that she was subservient to and less important than the Cleveland Indians. And that's wrong on many levels, right? But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you look at the human heart, that circumstances expose what I love, expose what I value. Listen, expose what I worship. Expose what I worship. And so there's four pillars that I want to talk about today. There's four things that I want, I want you to evaluate and four ways that I want to try to teach you to evaluate your life and how you can know what you love and what you worship and what you value. First thing is this. When God created man, he created him surrounded in glory and he created him worshiping. Now, you've probably heard things like, we have been created to worship or we've been created as worshipers. And I think that both of those things are true, but I don't think that they really quite get there. Because I think that the Bible actually teaches that God created us worshiping, meaning that we are always worshiping. We are always trying to put value on something, trying to find purpose. That's the reason that outside of the Bible, the most famous book of all time was written by a guy named Rick Warren, and it's called The Purpose Driven Life. Why? Because God created us worshiping. Now, lots of times we like to think about worshiping being something that we do 
or something that we go to. I came to a worship service or I listened to worship music. It's really a faulty understanding about the biblical ideal of worship because God says that he built us longing for purpose, longing for value and longing to give it to something transcendent. Longing to give it to something transcendent. I want something bigger than me to hang my hat on, right? I, I want something to give me purpose. I want something to give me value. I want something to give me meaning. And everybody in this room, I don't even need to know your name. I know that that's true about you. I know that that's true about you. And we as human beings, because we're built this way and conditioned this way, we are prone to what the Bible calls idolatry. Idolatry is very simply giving a higher value to something that's not God. And we do this in lots of different ways. We do it with work. We do it with money. We do it with, uh, with peace. We do it with sleep. We do it with our kids. I could go on and on and on. And you could probably add your own list. And this is why we're so easily manipulated by marketing. That's why whenever you're watching a car commercial, they don't just go, here's the car. What do they do? Do you want to be handsome? Well, yes, I do. <clears throat> Do you want to be seen as successful? Do you want, do you want beautiful women to, to think that, that, that they would want to spend their life? Yes, I do. Then you need this. I do need that. That's true. Right? Yeah. Do you want connection? Do you want to, to have very deep and sentimental conversation while looking at somebody on a handheld device? I do. I want that. And they're sitting beside a cliff overlooking the ocean. I want to live on a cliff beside an ocean, right? Then you need the iPhone 73, right? I mean, that's where it's going. 73S. Yeah. And this time it'll have glitter on it instead of be gold or silver or whatever. And we'll look at it and we'll say, that makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense to us. Why? Because you were created worshiping. And the thing that we, that we try to get at or the thing that we pursue isn't always the thing that we most deeply want or most deeply hope to connect with. In other words, nobody is foolish enough to think that their life is going to get better because of an iPhone. If you are, please come talk to me afterwards, all right? And let me smash your iPhone into a million pieces, okay? Nobody thinks that, but we do think I'll be able to talk to such and such. I'll be able to update Facebook. I'll be able, I'll be able to get connection. That's the brilliance of the marketing from Apple is that they don't try to sell you a phone. They try to sell you relationship and everybody wants relationship. There's really no such thing as a workaholic. There's no such thing as a workaholic. There is such a thing as somebody who is a workaholic because they want money or they want status or they want comfort or they want admiration or they want respect. There's no such thing as, as there's no such thing as lots of things that we do. And so the way that we need to start evaluating our life, it's the idea that when circumstances and desires pop up on the ocean of our heart, there's always something underneath it that because we're prone to worship, we're going to be prone to put above God. We're going to be prone to put above God or we're going to be prone to put above one another like I did and unfortunately like I do with my wife when I'm trying to watch the ball game, right? And she wants to talk or she wants to let me know and I'm like, ah, pause, yes? What am I doing? 
What am I doing? I'm conveying to her a sense of value. And I'm saying to her, right now you're underneath. We do that with God all the time. All the time. So God created man. He surrounded him with glory. And he created him worshiping. That's the first thing you need right now. Worshiping. Next, God created man. He surrounded him with glory. And he created him interpreting. If you're in Porterbrook, which I hope that you are or will be, you're going to run into this language that God created us worshiping and God created us interpreting. Whenever you think about the way that you take in information, if you think about it for any length of time, you understand that there are five ways that you can do that. You can listen, you can see, you can talk, you can taste, and you can feel. God created you that way. And on t- Did I get that right? I just saw a guy shaking his head. He didn't agree with me. All right. Five senses that God puts in so that you can look around and so that you can evaluate and so that you can interpret. And then on top of that, we have experience, we have tradition, we have reason, and we have intuition. So we have all these different mechanisms that God has put into our life, that God has created us with, so that we can take in information that he says points to him, right? We saw that last week, Romans chapter 1. God surrounded us with his glory as a manifestation of who he is so that when I look out into creation, when I see a beautiful sunset, when I smell an amazing meal, and then I taste it, of course, right? When I reach out and I touch somebody or they touch me, when I listen to a beautiful song, when I have a sanctified and sacred experience, when I have a tradition of redemption behind me, when I think through, when I have intuition, all of those things God gave me, why? So that I can interpret. So I could come to conclusions. And it's not that I am an interpreter. It's that I am interpreting. We see this in marriage all the time. We're going to talk about this next week. That you have two people who come together and they're worshiping and they're interpreting and they're making conclusions and they're drawing evaluations from one another based on what they most deeply desire. We do this all the time. And so God created you and I and he created us worshiping. He created us interpreting, and then here's how this works out. Based on what I'm worshiping, and based on how I'm interpreting, you get two things. You get a confession, or a belief, and you get a practice, or a behavior. Based on what I most highly value, I make interpretations, and out of that interpretation comes a belief, And out of that interpretation comes a behavior. And so if you're going to write four things down today, here's the grid. You can draw a horizontal line, a horizontal line. (laughs) I have dyslexia when I'm directionally, right? And a vertical line. And in the top left quadrant, you can put worshiping. In the bottom right quadrant, you could put interpreting. In the bottom left quadrant, you can put belief. In the top right quadrant, you can put behavior. And all of these things are deeply connected and all of these things lend and lead to one another. And all of these things are the reasons that we love what we love, worship what we worship, behave how we behave, believe what we believe, and interpret how we interpret. Let me give you two examples today. The first I'm going to give you from the Bible. I'm going to give you the example of the Garden of Eden. I want to give you the example of the Garden of Eden because it's the first time that we see humanity in this idea of worshiping, interpreting, believing, and behaving. So Adam and Eve are created in a garden that God says is what? What's he say about it? 
That it's good. And in fact, he says that it's very good. And so the first man and the first woman are put into the garden of God, the kingdom of God that's very good. And they are worshiping God on a permanent and regular basis. And they are interpreting their surroundings, right, the garden, as being from God and for God and to the glory of God. And out of this, they have a belief. They have a belief that God is is artistic and that God is creative and that God is glorious and that God is good. And the times where they close their eyes to sleep, if they slept, when they wake back up, they wake up in the belief that God gave them everything that they have because he's good and because he's right and because he's holy. And they gratefully and thankfully give their lives to him. And in their behavior with one another, they treat one another in accordance with that. And we know that they seek to have dominion over the garden that God gave them. And so in obedience to God and in relationship with one another, all is right and all is good because they are worshiping correctly. They are interpreting correctly. They are believing correctly. And out of all those things, they are behaving in a certain way. Does that make sense to you? What happens in Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis chapter 3, the enemy of God comes and how does he attack them? He attacks them around their interpretation. What does he say? He says, what's up with this God not letting you eat of this tree? What's up with this God who isn't allowing you to have of this tree? Now, you think about the absurdity of that argument. Of the millions of trees in the garden, the enemy says, let's talk about this one. Let's talk about this one. And that's the way many times that the enemy is going to attack you and I through our circumstances, through our circumstances. And think about what happened. This couple who had previously thought of God as good, previously thought of God as holy, previously thought of God as gracious and worshiped him out of that and interpreted their surroundings and believed and behaved in a certain way with that one reinterpretation. What do they do? You know what? That's true. What kind of God would do that to us? What kind of God would... The reason that he's doing that to us is because he wants to keep something from us. He wants to keep something from us. And he's unjust and he's selfish. And he knows that if we ate of that tree, that we would be just like him. And that we would have what he has. And that we would understand what he understands. And in an instant, a thing that they believe so firmly for such a long time based on good evidence is changed. Isn't it? It's changed. And their belief of God being good turns into God is selfish and is holding out on us. And then what do they do? What do they do? Based on their interpretation, they have a different belief, and that different belief leads to a different what? Behavior. This is a couple that had obeyed God when it came to the tree. And when the interpretation got changed, the belief got changed. And when the belief got changed, the behavior got changed, and they disobeyed God. And they eat of that fruit and they cast the world into sin and darkness. Why? Because of the way that they evaluated their circumstance and what it, listen, exposed in their heart. What was the temptation really? The temptation really was that Satan said, God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like what? Like God's. What did that reinterpretation exposed in them? It exposed the desire 
to be in charge, to rule their lives, to make their decisions, to do the things that we still struggle to do. And the only thing that the enemy is, listen, he didn't take him out of the garden, did he? He didn't say, come over to this desert and let's talk about this. He didn't come at them when it, when it was, you know, he didn't come at them theologically, like, let's talk about the soteriology of the doxological eschatology. He didn't do that. Because they would have been like, I don't, do you know what he meant? I don't know what he meant. Yeah. What did he do? He said, let's talk about your circumstance. Let's talk about your circumstance. Let's talk about what's going on. Let's talk about, and he took a thing that they had previously understood as good, and he perverted it. And they believed him. And their belief changed their confession, which changed their interpretation, which changed their behavior. It's the buoy under which the value previously was. Let's do another example. And let's look at the example of our common experience. And our common experience is suffering. We have a common experience of suffering. If you live long enough, you're going to experience suffering. That's the world in which we live. And we grieve that with you, and we long for a day when God says, no more suffering. Right? Amen? Yeah, we long, long for that day. When there's no more wars, where there's no more poverty, where there's, there's no more uh, racism, when there's no more inequality. We, we long for that day. But that day isn't today, is it? We live in a day where people are broken, where people are sinful, and out of that sin comes a certain interpretation, out of that interpretation comes a certain belief, and out of that belief comes a certain behavior. And we watch it on the news and we say, wow. So we have a common experience and possibly a common or uncommon evaluation of it. Let me give you what I think is a biblical evaluation of suffering. Many of us, we come to a point in our life where we believe that God saves us. We believe that Jesus died for us. We believe that God loves us and likes us. And we give our lives to Jesus. We walk an aisle or we pray a prayer or we, I don't know, what you did. All kinds of different stories. And when we believe God saves us, it's the same story every time. That we have a season in which everything is good, right? And everything is wonderful and everything is the grace of God. And we're excited and we're passionate and we're full and we're built up and we're edified and we're encouraged and we're tackling people and saying, you need God to save you, right? Like we are, we are marketers to the nth degree about the goodness of God. And then what happens? What happens is our circumstances change. We get a phone call or we get betrayed or we lose our job or we have a relationship ended or somebody that we love dies. And at that point, we have what is an experience of suffering that becomes the temptation of suffering. And in the temptation of suffering, you have a, you have an interpretation of events, right? You still live in a broken world even when God saves you, but you can see all the goodness of God everywhere. And you can see the grace of God everywhere, and you can see the hand of God everywhere. So you're interpreting it through the lens of who God is and what He's done and why He's done it, and then suffering hits, and you're tempted to reevaluate everything. You're tempted to reevaluate everything. And it's completely normal, and it's completely honest, and it's completely authentic. And so I'm not, I'm not condescending to that, but how many of you have had something awful happen to you, and your immediate thought was not about the circumstance, but about God? 
Why would God do this to me? Why would God treat me this? What kind of God? Do you know how many times I've heard that? What kind of God? Fill in the blank. And many times it's from people who, if I could have taken a snapshot of them right after God have said that would had saved them, the what kind of God would have been would would love me like this, would save me like this, would provide for me like this, be this faithful to me. What kind of God would do this? And it's a doxological positive, right? But suffering happens, and the same thing that happened to Adam and Eve happens to you and I. Point out the tree. What is up with this? What is up with this? This is wrong. This is broken. Here's the craziest thing about it. God agrees with you. God agrees with you that it's wrong and that it's broken. But the enemy says, let's think about this for a second. Walk over here for a second. Look, look at the, look at the, look at this tree and look at this fruit and look at it. What, what kind of God? You see what happens? And here's what begins to happen in our heart. The interpretation that previously led to a God who is good becomes an interpretation of a God that is unjust. And if God is unjust, then our belief has to change because who wants to give their life and base their eternity on a God who isn't good and is unjust? And so my interpretation changes, my belief changes, and when my belief changes, certainly my worship changes, and when my interpretation changes and my belief changes and my worship changes, my behavior is certainly going to change. Every single time. And I have very good and very dear friends who this happened to them. Something that was wrong, something that was broken, something that was unjust. And because they bought into a new interpretation, now when you talk to them about God, it sounds very different than it did before that thing happened. It's not that they're in a new place necessarily, it's that they have a new interpretation. That new interpretation gives them a new belief, that gives them a new worship, and they are no longer the same person. Their behavior is different. Now lots of times we like to just come over here and just evaluate their or our behavior. The Bible calls that moralism. That when we just evaluate our actions, we really do it in a way that's, that, that's not wise and that's not thorough and that's not holistic because what do we say at the beginning? That your life flows out of what? Your heart. It flows out of your heart. And your heart dictates the way that you interpret. And your heart dictates the things that you believe. And the behavior is the very last thing. It's the manifestation of everything that's going on inside. And everything that we're interpreting. And everything that we long for. And everything that we believe. Your behavior comes out of all of that. Now the beginning of our talk. We talked about Prometheus. And Prometheus just tries to change the interpretation and the circumstance, doesn't he? He just tries to change that. But you and I know, even if it's intuitively, that changing someone's circumstances often does nothing more than expose what's inside of them. How many of you guys have heard of Oprah Winfrey? <laughs> I, have never, I have no idea. All right? Oprah Winfrey has a very wise, you know, everyone, everyone gets it right once in a while. Um, yeah, and all the ladies are like, how dare you? <laughs> Oprah Winfrey says this, that fame, all that fame does is, is 
exposes who you really are times a hundred. Have you ever, have you ever been, you know, watching somebody go along and, and, and I can give you example after example. I can say Lindsay Lohan. I can say Miley Cyrus. I can say Britney Spears. I can go on and on and on. And they're on the Disney channel and they're cute and you, oh, shucks. And you let your kids watch them and they get a little bit older and then you, the music video comes on. You're like, oh wow, Britney Spears, she's probably going to be wearing Mickey Mouse ears and this is so crazy. And you're watching, oh my lord, what, what happened? What happened? And for some reason, odd reason, you're on TMZ.com and Britney's there and she's doing all kinds of crazy stuff and Miley's on wrecking balls and it's, it's, it's weird and it's creepy and you're like, this is, I can't, this is really bad. What happened? What happened is that fame exacerbated. Her circumstances changed and all it did was it exposed who she was at a broader level. And you can say, no, fame corrupted her. No, she was corrupt. Just like you and I are. If I were to take my life and I were to splatter it all across TMZ, do you know what people would think? That brother screwed up. And they would be right. The only difference between me and Miley and you and Miley, other than the wrecking ball and all that kind of stuff, is that your life isn't on full display for the world to evaluate. People don't know you. And people don't care about Miley, but they don't care about you even less than they don't care about Miley, right? Now, you can be as screwed up as you want because I don't know you. But here's what happens. Oprah's right. That when our circumstances change, it exposes our heart because the behaviors that are manifested from the things that we worship and the things that we value and the things that we believe just come out. It just comes out. And this is why the gospel, listen, changes everything. This is why the gospel changes everything. The gospel becomes the mechanism by which you and I interpret our circumstance. Let me give you an example. Whenever circumstances happen and they're awful and they're terrible and they're broken and we, we grieve and we long for the kingdom to come, we're tempted to question the goodness of God. But what does the gospel tell us about the goodness of God? Whenever I look at the cross, whenever I look at a father sending his son to die unjustly for his enemies so that he could provide them with love and care so that he could adopt them so that he could bring them into his family so that he could give them a better purpose and a better kingdom with a better king when i look through that lens of interpretation i come to a very clear conclusion so the gospel becomes a mechanism for interpretation that tragedy happens and maybe i get over the whether or not god is good hump but then the next question is if, okay, God's good, but he must not be powerful. He must not be powerful. Because if God were powerful and because, uh, okay, he's good, then he must be incompetent and inadequate. But the gospel answers that when I look at the resurrection. When I look at the resurrection, I look through the lens of the resurrection. I look at the way that Jesus ended up in the tomb. And when I look at him overcoming sin and death, when him overcoming tragedy and suffering and pain and difficulty, when I look at him walking through death and coming out on the other side victorious over death, and not only death, but all death, death with a capital D, and when I think about the kind of God that's capable of doing that, then I have a different interpretation. And so the gospel becomes the mechanism of my interpretation, not the temporal circumstance that God has already told us will be broken, but the gospel. 
The gospel is the means or the reason for my belief. Because when I evaluate the gospel at whole, I come to a clear belief, a doxology, right, of who God is. And the natural expression and the natural result and the natural thing that occurs when I look at God through those lands is I worship him. Whenever I look at a God who saves me, whenever I look at a God who loves and likes me, whenever I look at a God who's ultimately powerful, listen, I come to the very clear understanding that nothing is more valuable than that because nothing can do for me what he's done for me. And so the job becomes something that I look at through the lens. My marriage becomes something that I look at through the lens. My money, my kids, my my leisure, my 401k, my relationships, all of those things, I look at through the lens of the gospel. But when I walk out around the gospel and look at the gospel through the lens of suffering, I get a very different picture. I get a very different picture. The gospel points us toward our highest value. That's why we talk about the person and work of Jesus. And finally, listen, the gospel, out of right worship, right belief, and right interpretation, changes our behavior. That's why we don't do a lot of seven steps toward being a better husband. That's why we do a lot of talking about the gospel. That's why we don't do a lot of Four ways to not hate your kids. That's why we talk about the gospel, right? 73 ways to not grow broke. We don't, we don't talk a ton about behavior because I know and the elders know that when we look at scripture, if we only talk about behavior, we're putting you in bondage. And so what do we talk about? We talk about your highest value. We talk about Jesus as king and being good and trustworthy. We talk about you interpreting your circumstance around those things and looking through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of Jesus and coming back to the gospel. We use phrases like preaching the gospel to your heart. We use phrases like getting in a community group and gospeling one another, not Googling, gospeling one another, right? Why do we do that? Because the gospel is the totality of the things by which we are changed into the image of Jesus. Our behavior changes because of what we believe, how we interpret, and what we value. But if I train you to only change your behavior, it's just a matter of time before all of those things start peeking out. Before all of those things start creeping into your behavior, and then we're into behavior modification, and then we're into behavior management, which is sounds like this. Guys should have short haircuts and wear pants. Gals should have long hair and wear dresses. You have to carry this version of the Bible, go to these kinds of movies, hang out with these kinds of people, eat this kind of food, go to bed at this kind. Don't drink beer. Don't smoke this. Don't do caffeine. Don't... See what we're doing? We're trying to modify our behavior so that it appears that what we most deeply love is God. It's not true, is it? Here's what I know. That over time, when I most deeply long for Jesus, when I am most deeply satisfied by Him, He will change my behavior. Yeah. And He will change my heart because the more that I love Him, the more in line I will come with Him. I will value Him. 
I will believe him and I will interpret my surroundings by him. And if you do all of those things, I promise you, you will eventually start to look more like him. And so over the next eight weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Jesus over your marriage. How do I evaluate my marriage in light of worship? Jesus over your parenting. How do I evaluate my kids? Jesus over your finances. Jesus over your work. We're going to try to go down through the list of things that when we only look at behavior, we get put in bondage. And we're going to try to untangle them so that we can clearly get to Jesus from every point in our life. And so next week, we're going to start with marriage. All right? We're going to talk about worship and marriage. We're going to talk about what we worship and how we evaluate and interpret. We're going to talk about what we believe and how we behave. And we're going to try to give, ask the Holy Spirit to give us the tools to be able to love him deeply so that our behavior looks like Jesus. All right. So if you're married or if you hope to be married, then I would invite you back next week. If you have finances, if you have kids, if you have a job, if you have Sabbath, if you, if you, if you, if you. This is going to be a really, really practical series. So worshiping, interpreting, believing, and behaving, that's our grid. I'd ask you to think on that, pray through that, and come back next week at, unofficially, 945. All right, stand with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for his wisdom and for his beauty. Thank you, God, for the magnificence of you sending him to us. God, so that we can we can correctly understand, so that we can correctly interpret, so that we can correctly worship God, so that our behavior is a city on a hill, is a blessing to a city, so that our behavior is encouraging and edifying to one another so that a family can be built. God, we know all of these things that we're talking about are things that you accomplish by your glory and for the good and joy of your people. And God, I pray that you'll help us to agree with you over the next 10 weeks or so about our marriage, about our kids, about our money, about our work, about all the things that make up our life. And God, I'm asking you publicly and I'm asking you vehemently now to change this church in the next 10 weeks into a church that worships you in spirit and in truth, into a church that agrees with you, into a church that interprets as you do, and into a church that loves you, that longs for your kingdom, and that in every way seeks to mimic who you are, the goodness of who you are, to a city that longs for a better king. God, do something in this church and your church, in our church, for your glory and for our joy. We'll thank you in advance in the belief that you'll do it. In the name of Jesus.